Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The path to reconciliation is one of listening, learning and growing together. A path that recognises the central place of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our past and in our future. It is in that spirit that we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and pay tribute to Elders past, present and future. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, which is produced at the Australian National University's Crawford School of Public Policy and co-hosted by me, Sharon Bessel. I'm a Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School and Director of the Children's Policy Centre. And beside you, Sharon, Anna Greta Hunter, cardiologist, physician and the Human Futures Fellow with the ANU College of Health and Medicine. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod. It's great to be with you today, and I'm joining you from Norway, where northern summer is at its height, and the magical midnight sun is with us. Today on the pod, we'll be exploring the complexities of the world in which we live, the risks, the challenges, and the opportunities. I so often hear from the young people who are participating in our research about how multiple crises, challenges, and complexities are shaping their lives, from pandemic, climate emergency, and extreme weather events, to identity politics, the cost of living, and deep uncertainty about the future. I also hear from young people about their hopes and their dreams and the opportunities that they see, the ways in which the world could be different, more equal, more just, and more meaningful. The past century has brought seismic shifts in how we live, in the ways we work, connect, and communicate. The past five years have brought changes and risks that we could not have even imagined a decade ago. And the past five years have also demonstrated the extent of human resilience and ingenuity, from the rapidity with which COVID-19 vaccines were developed, to incredible advances in technology and new ways of thinking that put wellbeing and care at the centre. Whether framed as polycrisis or complexity, the world is grappling with tumult. Natural disasters, the possibility of irreversible climate change and the hope that catastrophe can be diverted. We're experiencing disruption to supply chains and larger questions about the future of globalisation. In our region and across the globe, economic and political power is shifting and geopolitical tensions, in some cases open conflict, are reshaping our world. We stand on the brink of an artificial intelligence revolution. So how do we begin to think about such complexity? How can we think differently? To talk about some of these very big ideas, I'll be talking today with two wonderful guests. Arna Greta Hunter, who is normally beside me as co-host, has jumped the mic and will be sharing some of her recent work on risk. And alongside Arna Greta, we are delighted to welcome Anthea Roberts. Anthea is Professor at the School of Regulation and Global Governance, or RegNet, She's an interdisciplinary researcher and a legal scholar who focuses on new ways of thinking about complexity and evolving global fields. Anthea joined us on Policy Forum Pod a few years ago with her co-author Nicholas Lamb in a remarkable discussion about their book, The Six Faces of Globalisation, Who Wins, Who Loses and Why It Matters. Anthea, welcome to you. It's so lovely to have you back on the pod. Uh, Thank you very much for having me. And Anna Greta, it's wonderful to have the opportunity to ask some questions of you on these issues that I know you're thinking so much thought to. Welcome. Sharon, thank you so much for having me. And it's an extraordinary privilege to sit here beside Anthea. Anthea, thank you so much for coming back on the pod. Anthea, you recently published an article entitled Risk, Reward and Resilience Framework, Integrative Policymaking in a Complex World in the Journal of International Economic Law. In that article, you argue that throughout the 20th and the 21st centuries, we saw academics and policymakers becoming increasingly specialised, typically within a discipline or a domain. And there's a very evocative quote where you describe siloed groups of experts colliding, and this leading to an outcome that's frequently acrimonious 
and sometimes gives the impression of us versus them tribal fighting. You argue that to deal with the challenges we face today, we need very different ways of thinking, of doing and of collaborating. How will outcomes be different if we're able to break down those silos that we see and move beyond acrimonious collisions towards much greater collaboration? So it's a, it's a great question, and I think in a way it's probably easier to answer some of these big general questions by giving some specific examples of where this has come up in, in the way that I've observed it, but I think other people would have their own examples. So I think the way in which I've observed this really originally came out of uh, the field of research I was doing into geoeconomics. And what I was seeing in the very early time was I was seeing an international economic law community that was very, very strongly focused on the benefits of uh, free trade and economic interdependence. And then I was increasingly seeing a security community that was looking at these same forms of economic and digital connectivity. And instead of seeing wonderful economic opportunities, they saw deep uh, risks, uh, they saw cyber attacks, they saw economic coercion, they saw vulnerability. And part of my observation of these two very, very different uh, communities was that they were often located with different disciplinary backgrounds. They were often located in different departments in the government. And neither of them really saw their view as partial. They typically saw their view as rather comprehensive and completely correct. And so when the two views came together, it tended to be exactly as I described there, acrimonious, with a very strong sort of us versus them, you know, the security people thinking the economists had just completely sold out the sort of uh, security of the nation and the economists thinking that the security security types were just hyping up the threat and making the threat more of a threat for themselves uh, in order to enlarge their share of the um, national budget. And so we saw these very partial views. We saw this very acrimonious uh, set of interactions. And it really started me at that point starting to think, well, how can we start to develop frameworks that sort of bring both perspectives and both communities of people together onto a shared page so that they can see that they are giving real contributions, but they can also see that there are other perspectives that they need to integrate into the mix. And so how do we, how do, we do that? And it was the point of doing that, I think I was really starting to think, how do I develop a framework that thinks about risk and reward? But by 2020, I decided I needed to branch that out and think about resilience as a third element. But I guess my hope for it, um, Sharon, to go to your question is, my hope is that if we are able to develop better integrative approaches, that we will be better able to understand that many disciplines and many domain specialists have something very real and important to contribute, but we all tend to be somewhat blinkered by our particular perspective and our particular location, our particular set of values. And so we need to find ways to be able to not just speak, but also um, hear these other perspectives and try to integrate um, those different perspectives into a more comprehensive understanding of an issue, including aspects of an issue that you may not have thought about or perspectives that you may not like. And my own sense is that by doing that, we'll be able to get more rounded policy outcomes than I think we often see at the moment where you often see a bit of a tug of war. And frankly, whoever holds the pen or has the budget tends to give their view as the dominant view. Anthea, I think this is a, a fascinating and a really exciting way to think differently about how we work together. And can I ask you to just tease out a little more that idea of integrative thinking and integrative approaches? I think what I've often observed is when we have people from different perspectives, different disciplines, different uh, departmental agendas come together, what we often get is a very uneasy kind of compromise or sometimes a bolting on of a slightly different perspective but in a way that's not deeply meaningful how do we really begin to to get to an integrative approach where it's more than the bolting on or the uneasy compromise 
So it's a, it's a fantastic question you have there because I think that definitely is what happens. People uh, try to assert the dominance of their frame and then they make minor tweaking in order to, a, to accommodate just enough to get it through and it is uncomfortable. Uh, a lot of the outcomes can be less than satisfactory, but the process itself can also be uncomfortable, though I would say sometimes that level of discomfort is actually productive. I think uh, sometimes when we're all in agreement, we may think that we are doing a great job, but actually that level of agreement suggests that we're not actually holding enough of the productive disagreement and, and facing those compromises. I think to answer to your question, so one of the reasons that I went with a risk, reward and resilience framework in the end was to try to take people out of their dominant paradigm and to kind of come in at a 90 degree angle. So when people talk, for example, about the national interest, they often talk about, you know, economics or prosperity. They talk about security. They talk about values or social issues or environmental issues. And what I tended to notice is that when you, when you sort of broke it into those subject areas or things that had clear disciplinary backgrounds, people tended to get into their camps and then they knew where they stood and they knew who to take aim at and who they disagreed with. And so part of my thinking was to try to come in at a 90-degree angle with a cross-cutting framework of risk, reward, and resilience, which was cross-applicable across these domains. So you can have economic risk, reward, and resilience. You can have environmental risk, reward, and resilience. You can have security risk, reward, and resilience. And one of the things about taking that kind of cross-cutting integrative framework is it disrupts the binaries. It disrupts the tendency to see uh, health against economics or economics against the environment or economics against security, because you're kind of creating a cross-cutting way that um, talks between different communities, maybe not in their mother tongue, but in a tongue that they understand. So one policymaker said to me that one of the reasons that he really liked the work that I did on this was that it became, it, it sort of created a space, a demilitarized zone where people with economic training and security training could come together. But he also had this very evocative phrase. He said, it creates a policy pigeon, which is the language that I'm using is not the high-end English or the high-end French or the high-end of whatever the particular discipline is, but it is understandable and movable across disciplines. And so I think that idea of policy pigeon, that idea of demilitarized zones, is actually a very effective way to start to understand what it is that we're trying to create and therefore how it changes the conversation and we hope also changes the outcomes. That idea of policy pigeon is is really lovely. And I'll leave it for our, our listeners to speculate whether it was the economist or the security specialist who talked about the demilitarised zone. <laughs> um, but Anna Greta, I, I wanted to bring you in here and, and to ask you how we might think differently about health and healthcare if we take on board Anthea's call for interdisciplinary and integrative policymaking. And Anna Greta, you've spent um, the summer of the recent Australian summer on a Churchill Fellowship exploring different ways of, of approaching health. Did you see the, any examples of interdisciplinary and integrative thinking um, during that fellowship that, that we can learn from and start to, to think differently by, by drawing on? Absolutely, Sharon. Uh, firstly, I just have to remind listeners about the podcast recording we did with Anthea and Nicholas Lamp last year. Um, I'm struck again by that book that they wrote together, The Six Faces of Globalisation. And I know that reading has helped uh, me immensely when I'm approaching complex problems in healthcare, um, really describing exactly what Anthea's just been talking about, of taking a multitude of different lenses to a complex problem and identifying that there's not always one perfect answer. And so this modelling that Anthea is describing in a, an economic or an international um, law space is directly applicable in healthcare. Sometimes the diseases that we look after have a very strongly biological origin and there will be one answer to the question. But so much of the time when we're looking at illness and disease and healthcare systems within the, uh, the, the Australian context particularly and, and globally, we're actually looking at a complex system where there are a multitude of different lenses that can be brought to solve a problem. 
siloed thinking is not just an academic problem. It's not just a policy problem. I'm sure so many listeners from so many disciplines will be thinking about how this is in their own professional life. And it's certainly an issue in medicine. And so for me, this this concept of risk-reward resilience, these ideas of the importance of recognising a multitude of different lenses when approaching a problem uh, is a central one to, to a transformation in healthcare which is badly needed. Examples, um, if we wanted to, to tackle things like cardiovascular disease, focusing only on the biological uh, model may not give us all of the answers. In fact, it won't. Um, allowing other frameworks to come into that discussion, the social determinants of health that we would have spoken to so many people on, uh, the, on the pod over the last couple of years, and then the broader environmental context. And so how do we create space for all of those voices in a way that brings together the complexity and the uncertainty uh, that will inform the best practice. So isn't that an interesting concept, that uncertainty and imprecision should be incorporated into our best practice? And we are beginning to see ways in which this is nudged across the healthcare sector. Um, and you, you asked me about whether there are examples on my Churchill Fellowship. Now, I was focused predominantly on issues of communication and listening and talking. And so I was really struck when Anthea was saying before that it's not just speaking, but it's how we hear and how we listen, how we talk to, to each other, how we share information. Um, and that was the primary focus of my Churchill exploration. And I'm sure it's something we'll talk about further down the track. This is a really interesting point uh, that Anna Greta brings up. and. One way I think about this is you can understand the book that we did, Six Faces of Globalization, in two different ways. So most people read it as an account of economic globalization and the debates about economic globalization and what's going forward. But I think actually the other way to read it is that it is what we would think of in the intelligence agency world as a structured analytic technique. It is a structured analytic technique about how do you understand and unpack a complex problem by taking a multi-perspective, multi-narrative analysis. And from each perspective and each analysis saying kind of what does the problem look like from this perspective? What level of analysis am I using? What unit of analysis am I using? What values am I um, endorsing? What uh, causal mechanisms am I assuming? And once you understand it as a structured analytic technique, you can actually then apply it to many, many other circumstances. And that's something that we're, that we're working on at the moment. Interestingly, risk, reward and resilience was the very next step after the six phases of globalisation because when we presented six phases of globalisation to many policymakers, they would say, you're absolutely right in the diagnosis. I, I understand the complexity better and I understand some of the views that before I thought were stupid or wrong um, or malevolent. I understand those, but like, what do I do? And I just really remember very specifically some of the policymakers saying, but what do I do? Do I just bring representatives um, from the different narratives together around a table? Like, where will that get to? And that's where I wanted to say, no, I think there's some more structured analytic work we can do at that next step to create integrative frameworks like risk, reward and resilience, which once again, it's not about economics and security or about the environment. It's about structured ways of moving through complex problems that you can cross-apply to different areas. Anthea, we've talked quite a bit about this framework that you've developed around risk, reward and resilience. Before we go to the break, I wonder if you could just talk us through what that framework looks like. I think our listeners are getting a good idea of it from this conversation, but could you just talk us through it and, and through each of those domains and dimensions? Sure. So this is one that there's a there's a lot of cognitive complexity in this that I'm trying to unpack. And, and my own experience with this is it's often easier to do with visuals than in a podcast format. So bear with me here. They say that cognitively you can remember seven things plus or minus two. And this particular approach has three broad elements, risk, reward, and resilience. So that sounds relatively easy. But each of them have three subcomponents, which takes us to nine, which takes us to the outer limits of our cognitive abilities. So I'll do my best to do that in a verbal sense. 
So risk is something that we already have very clear models of. The way that you understand risk is it's a product of three things. One is your external threat or hazard. Uh, the other is your exposure to that threat or hazard. And the final one is your vulnerability that can make it better or worse. So if we think about COVID, for example, how bad is the particular virus? That's your threat or hazard. Exposure is, you know, it, do your, it, does your country have borders open? Do you have lockdown of your economy so that you may or may not get exposed to the virus? And then um, vulnerability is any of these sort of medical conditions you might have or socioeconomic inequalities that may make the risk worse. And so we understand risk is a product of these three things. What I would say is that reward is also the product of three things. And this is one where we don't have as clear models for this, but what I'm saying is very consistent with economic and business thinking. So when we think about rewards, and rewards can be financial, but they can be other things as well. Rewards are a product, I would say, of an external opportunity, your capability to match with that opportunity and access which connects the opportunity and your capability. So if we take the COVID example again, imagine you're running a restaurant, so you want to make rewards from running your restaurant. If the government locks down the economy, what they've actually done is they shut off access. And so when you go and have access, you cannot make the rewards. You cannot match the opportunity with the capability to, to make your rewards. But even if the government hadn't shut down the economy, you may still not make the rewards because your customers may be scared away by the virus, so there's no real opportunity in the market. Or the opportunity might be there, the customers might be there, but they uh, you can't service them because your staff is out sick, that you have no capability. And so once again, like with risk, what we see is that rewards require this intersection of uh, opportunity, capability, and access. And these are really kind of opposite, like mirror images of each other. And often what we're asking people to do is make specific risk reward decisions at a particular point in time. Whereas what I want to do is I want to add an extra dimension, which is the resilience dimension. And the resilience dimension I get very strongly from uh, disciplines like areas of climate change, disaster management, psychology, but also interestingly, business innovation. And what resilience basically does is it makes you think more sustainable systemically and over time. So there are three basic states that we think about with resilience. The first is your ability to, say, absorb a shock and not really let it affect you. So if you think in the COVID circumstance, the level of PPE stockpiles you have could let you absorb a run on PPE without being affected. The second is adaptive capacity. So what are the small changes you can make to basically keep going even if a bit differently? So the way we were able to retool some of our manufacturing towards PPE would be an example of that. And then finally, there's transformative um, approaches to resilience, which is really how do we change in a much more fundamental and structural way so that we get to a whole new resonance point. And one of the things I would say about this is that people often think about resilience as simply a response to risk, but actually resilience is also the way in which you position for future rewards. So if we think about climate change, for example, when we think about climate change, people often think about extreme weather events and they would think, well, can we absorb the higher temperatures or absorb the um, the extreme weather events? Can we adapt by moving some people to higher ground? But really, if we want to deal with climate change, we actually need to transform our economies. We need to have a clean energy transition. That's a form of transformative resilience, which is not just about responding to risk. It's frankly also about positioning for future rewards. What are the opportunities in clean energy markets? What capabilities do we want to build? And so we see countries like Australia really starting to sit at that sort of transition point of starting to think about transformative resilience. And I think my argument is that we really need to bring together these different ways of thinking. In a way, one way I like to think of it is if rewards is thinking like an economist and risk is thinking like a security specialist, then um, resilience is thinking like an ecologist. And we need to bring these pros and these cons and these systemic over time understandings together to create integrative frameworks that allow us to understand the complexity of problems, but also how systems uh, come together and move over time. Anthea, that was a, a beautiful explanation of a very complex framework um, and it is a, a very visual approach that you take but I, I think that most of our listeners will have a really clear understanding of the, the framework in their minds after that explanation. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. I'm really keen to tease this out a little bit more. We'll take a break now and we'll come back in just a few minutes to talk more about risk but also about reward and resilience. So listeners, please stay with us. 
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. We're here on Policy Forum Pod with Anthea Roberts and Anna Greta Hunter. Anthea, before the break, you did a beautiful job of explaining um, a very complex framework um, that is quite visual for our listeners who don't have the benefit of the visuals. And we will put a, a link to your article in our show notes so our listeners can have a look at that framework. But I wonder if you might be able to perhaps give us a, a talk, talk us through um, an example of how that framework might play out in practice. So if we look back over the past few decades, do we see a way in which we can make that abstract framework very concrete? Sure. And I think we can definitely do that about specific issues. But I think your your reference to time is actually really important here. Because what I find is that different uh, parts of the framework are not only sort of overpopulated by different disciplines, but they're overpopulated at different points in time. So let's take the example of economic globalization. If you think about the 1990s and the 2000s, that's really the period of high economic globalization, a very, very, very strong focus at that time on the rewards aspect. And so that's a period, if you think about my three things from rewards of opportunity, capability, and access. So we were all about improving access through entering into lots of trade and investment agreements and having compulsory dispute resolution. Why? Because we wanted to go after the opportunities of global markets and economies of scale and specialization. And wow, specialization was also about building capabilities because we had the idea that you would build your capability in areas that you did best, your comparative advantage, and you would get rid of the rest. So this is a period where we see a very strong focus with the economists in government and with economic thinking and a focus on reward. Now switch ahead to 2008 when we have the global financial crisis where suddenly we start to think, hang on, connectivity can lead to risks, not just to rewards, but also in the 2010s when we start to see the rise of China starting to really become much more uh, a concern for many of the Western states. And here we start to see, particularly the security agencies starting to say, well, hang on a second, there are some real risks that come with economic globalization and connectivity. So if we think about exposure, for example, suddenly we're exposed to global supply chain shocks or we're exposed to um, economic coercion. If you think about vulnerability, they would say, well, you know, you may have built up Australia, your comparative advantage in minerals and in high-end education and tourism but you've completely hollowed out your ability to do manufacturing, so you're not self-sufficient anymore. And you've also, because you've got this incredibly complementary economy with China, you've created an unbelievably concentrated reliance on China, which now gives you huge vulnerabilities. And they would also say that many of the opportunities that you pursued from economic globalization, like travel, and I'm definitely an example of this, they also drive some of your threats and hazards. So we can see, for example, from COVID, how much travel and connectivity drove not just the pandemic risk, but also drove the supply chain risk. And so suddenly in 2008 to 2010s, we're starting to see this risk focus coming up. We're seeing this very binary relationship between a risk uh, frame and a, and a rewards frame between the economists and the security type because they were both using one lens as dominant. And then what we see is 2020 rolls around and suddenly everybody's wanting to talk about 
resilience. And one of the reasons they want to talk about resilience is suddenly some of those risks that had seemed hypothetical actually manifest. And so you're in a situation where you need to now think about how do you respond and how do you adapt and keep going. But I think it's also a time when we start to become much more conscious of systemic approaches. So we're seeing systemic approaches about things like supply chain shocks. Actually, we need to think about what capabilities we have as a nation uh, to be able to deal with these issues. We're seeing it in the climate space. We're seeing it um, in a whole variety of areas. And so we're starting to see people focusing much more, not just on that absorbative and adaptive capacity. So you know, how much slack should I have? How much redundancy should I have? How can I be adaptive and adaptive governance and adaptive approaches, agile? So we see all of that. But actually, you're seeing a much greater focus in policymaking now on this idea of transformative innovation. And that transformative innovation is behind a lot of the moves towards industrial policy. And a lot of that is coming out of, you know, how do we deal with the climate crisis? And also, how do we deal with the geostrategic competition with China, with moves in things like the energy sector? And so I think we're starting to see that era really coming to the fore. What we haven't seen yet is a good framework for a cross-government about how do you integrate your thinking about risk, reward and resilience. And that was really what I was trying to provide. Anthea, you've you've said in the article that you wrote um, around the framework that the framework does not tell people and policymakers what to think about complex problems, but how to think about complexity. And I'm reflecting on some of the comments that you made before the break about uh, PPE during COVID um, and resilience as enabling us to position ourselves for future awards. And of course, in relation to PPE, that saw wealthier nations stockpiling essential equipment, which then led to deep inequities in distribution globally. Does transformative resilience and transformative thinking lead us towards greater equity and social justice? Or is that not the point of the framework? And and so I guess what I'm really asking you here is, is there a normative dimension to the framework? It's an incredibly good question. Um, so I'll, I'll sort of answer it in two different ways. I think when you're thinking like an ecologist or you're thinking using systems thinking, when you're talking about transformative resilience, what you're actually talking about is moving to a different system state. And that can be a better or a worse system state, but you don't have often the same normativity uh, sort of, um, as part of the understanding of the system state. What I would suggest actually with this framework and, and part of the work that we're trying to do now is, is say that you not only need to look at risk, reward and resilience in the abstract, but you need to ask yourself these questions about distribution and equity, but also um, political economy about whose risk whose reward and whose resilience. And that's when you're starting to say, okay, when I'm assessing this, am I just assessing this at a national level where I'm aggregating everything? Or are some communities or individuals disproportionately bearing the risk? Others are disproportionately getting the rewards and others are being sought to have to cushion things with the resilience. And I think those questions, which you should apply on top of the framework, are very, very important for questions of distribution and equity and justice, which you're going to. But they're also really important political economy questions because sometimes those very inequities are what makes transformation hard. So the very fact that many of the risks of climate change are being borne by certain groups and many of the rewards are being borne by another group is not just a question of inequity, it's a question of why it is so hard to have transformative resilience. I also think when you're thinking about resilience, you need to think about the difference between means and motivation. So the way I think about this in the climate change is that actually when you've got very, very high rewards from, for example, selling fossil fuels now, in theory, that actually adds to your resilience because it adds to the money you have in the bank to absorb, to adapt and transform. So from an economist perspective, you would think it increases your resilience, but actually what it does from a political economy perspective is it completely undermines your motivation for transformational change because you're making too much money now. Interestingly, as we have climate shocks and as the risks go up, the more risks we have and the more bushfires we have, the more extreme floods we have, the more of a battering we take. In many ways, each of those depletes our resilience in terms of our means, like we have less money in the bank, less ability to absorb, less ability to adapt, less money to put towards transformation. But actually, all of those risks as they mount up increase our motivation for transformational 
resilience. And so a lot of the policymaking has to get us to a point where we have enough motivation for transformational resilience before our means for transformational resilience has been exhausted. And so that's kind of the transformational resilience gap where you need to understand motivations and means. So I think that the that those sort of ideas you can build into, but you need to build them in on a, an additional level on top of this particular framework where you start to think about distributional consequences and what that means among societies, among individuals over time. And you need to think about what does that mean for fairness, but what does it also mean for the possibility of change? I I just wanted to shift our attention now to what all of this might mean for Australia. And Anna Greta, you were recently part of a workshop of experts on resilience and risk. that was held here at the Australian National University to discuss the Australian government's decision to investigate a national risk assessment process. And you co-authored the report from that event. Anna Greta, can we begin by, by asking you how Australia currently approaches complex, complex risks? It is a great question. It's a good place to start in terms of uh, the way I see the national risk discussion. And uh, every time I listen to Anthea talking about her frameworks, I'm finding myself seeing this layered approach to, to complex problem solving. And this concept of risk to me is what's happening on the ground. Um, We understand in Australia risk particularly well through the environmental hazard literature and the emergency response to natural disasters. And we've done a tremendous amount of work on on the climate side of those things and the the Royal Commission into National Natural Disaster Arrangements and the way in which we respond to bushfires and to floods. So that's one maybe silo of the the Australian risk response. Our security uh, forces, of course, have a tremendous engagement in national risk, and as do other parts of our government, our treasury, our health, et cetera, et cetera. And so you, you might hear from what I'm saying that we most definitely are already addressing risk across a wide range of parts of both government and non-governmental organisations and academia, but we do tend to take somewhat of a siloed approach. So each each individual part might be looking at their risk, perhaps with some side conversations, but really focused in on the climate change risk, on the health risk, on the economic risks, or on the global trade risks. And so one of the things that we were hoping to provoke from the conversation, the roundtable discussion that we had uh, just recently here at ANU, and w- of which Anthea was, of course, a part, a discussion of how to integrate those risks across a framework to provide some sort of foundation on which solutions might be uh, examined. And do we need a, a national approach to risk assessment? How might we go about thinking more integratively within Australia. Anthea, what are the first steps that we we need to take towards a national risk assessment? And and perhaps a prior question is, is do we need a national approach? It's really interesting. I think that sort of involves two different areas. Uh, The one is uh, the focus on risk and the other is the national level. So I'm sympathetic to the idea that we need to think in more comprehensive ways about the different types of risks that we're facing and how they may be interconnected and they may spill over uh, into each other. That's very kind of consistent with the way that I think. But I probably um, am somebody who wants to very much not just have a risk lens because I find that when people have a risk lens, it puts them in that security mindset. They often don't think enough about resilience or rewards and it, it kind of can bias and shut down thinking. So I tend to be a bit resistant of anything that just has a risk framing and Anna Greta knows this has been a back and forth. She's not resistant to that at all. But I think the other thing I would say is that it's something that you can do at a national level and is significant at a national level. But I think these are multi-scalar concepts. So one of the things I say when I do my risk reward and resilience thing is it's not just meant to be something that you can move sideways between different issue areas. It's a scalar concept that you can apply at the national level. You could apply at the regional level. You could apply at the company level the local level. And frankly, you can actually also apply it at an individual level. I think one of the examples I give is I've just been thinking about this in, in a sort of a company level or at a local community level. But one of my friends actually applied it to internet dating that uh, 
you can um, sort of have think about the rewards of internet dating, but somebody else is like, oh, you know, but the terrible risks. And then my friend was like, yeah, but you basically get to a point where you've been on so many bad dates, you just don't have resilience to keep going. You need to take some time out and, and restock your absorptive capacity for bad dates. Um, but it has made me think that you want to be able to have frameworks and concepts that you can move sideways and you can move up and down. So do we need a national risk assessment? I would say yes, but do we only need a national risk assessment, I would say no. This is something we need to think about in a multi-scalar way because they're all connected. And I think what you often find is that when you have problems at one level, you can compensate for those if you have support from another level. So the problem is often when you have all of your systems, your individual, your family, your community, your state, your national, if all of them, for example, have almost no resilience, that's when you're in massive trouble. But if parts of the system have resilience and others don't, then you can support in a complex world by the transfer of resources in various sorts of ways to support. So should we have it? Yes. Is it the only level or the only focus? No. I couldn't agree more with Anthea. And I'm sure that's part what people should read from the report that we've written. The idea of a national risk assessment, the reason why that conversation is important, is to really foster discussion across different complex problems so that when we're looking at climate change risk, that we are bringing in a health and economic and security lens um, and that we develop techniques, the techniques, in fact, that Anthea described at the beginning of today's podcast of how to facilitate those conversations, how to find the shared language, the pigeon discussion um, of being able to share ideas that have interrelationships and interdependence. You know, five years ago, the idea of a national risk assessment was important, but five years after a catastrophic bushfire season where we've had the, the climate change impacts around Australia in the last five years have been significant, we've watched uh, a global pandemic unfold, uh, the advances in artificial intelligence and the way in which we use technology have changed significantly in the last few years. And of course, the geosecurity environment in which we find ourselves now is different to the, to the events that we had five years ago. There's a literature that suggests we are in a world of increasing complexity and particularly the likelihood of interrelated interdependencies around significant threats, I think, is there. And so how we find the three R's, the risk, resilience and rewards, as we contend with some significant challenges, which are likely to happen not just in isolation, but in a way that can cascade off each other. I'd like to see that conversation start, and I can see a tremendous benefit to a conversation occurring across government, but not just government federally, government at a state and at a regional level, and encouraging that conversation, um, empowering those conversations across community, non-governmental organisations, organisations that are beginning to look towards the complex future. And as Anthea says, we can use some of these things to inform individual um, and community-based decision-making. I'd like to see the framework uh, uh, as a useful tool for people who are thinking in academia through these complex problems. And it's it's really an insight, I think, into the benefits of an integrative thinking approach so that there may not be one particular solution and there may be other ways of looking at complex problems. Um, and the richness that we get from those multiple perspectives is rewarding. As I'm listening to, to both of you talking about this, the importance of listening and listening differently really strikes me as being central to being able to move forward with with this type of thinking. And I'm reminded of, of, of a quote from the research that I do where um, Roger Hart, who was one of the leaders of the field of childhood studies, made the point that you know, adults often listen to children, but they listen with adult ears. And this often happens in any difficult conversation we're, ha- we're having. We listen, but we listen only through our own perspective. As we think about having the kinds of conversations you talked about, Anna Greta, which are, are multi-level um, and which uh, within which there is always power, I wonder how we can start to take the steps towards listening in ways that create the space for that policy pigeon to emerge. How do we really think differently about listening Anna Greta, would you like to, to give your reflections on the importance of listening? I'm, I'm going to reflect a little bit on the, the learning that I had from my Churchill Fellowship approach um, and the, the extraordinary number of wonderful conversations that, that informed my thinking there. 
Um, listening is a skill, it's an art, and it's an absolute privilege. And so part of the, the um, way in which we can promote uh, listening is by recognising its tremendous importance in what we do. Um, talking about listening, recognising, incentivising it, uh, making sure that there's time and, uh, and, and in the healthcare environment, making it an absolute priority in the way that the health system runs. We can do the same thing in a policy space, making sure that we have got time to listen to each other um, and that we're not, we're not occupied by a binary metric that might try and define the conversation, but we're actually open to new ideas, new framing um, and, and new ways of approaching problems. It's a challenge. I can't wait to hear Anthea's answer to this. It's such a fantastic question. Um, and I'm sort of reminded of some of the literature about conflict resolution, but also about how they change minds of people who've been in cults and um, in very politically polarized situations, how minds change. And I think we often have an assumption that you should challenge people directly and you should show that their facts are wrong or you should do X, Y, and Z. And all the literature on this suggests that actually that doesn't just not work. It's completely counterproductive. And so there's really interesting work, a, a piece, a book called um, How Minds Change by David McCraney, I think, where he looks at the science in a lot of different areas about how people change their minds. And one of the things they find is that it's incredibly difficult to change somebody else's mind by um, without sort of first listening and showing that your mind is open and that once once it's clear that somebody feels heard, they are more likely to hear. So I think there's something really significant in that. The other thing I think that's interesting from some of that literature is the importance between the importance of perspective taking and perspective giving. So I often think about the importance of perspective taking, like what does it look like from this lens? What does it look like from that lens? What does it look like from that perspective? And I was saying that's actually particularly important for people who are in positions of power to train themselves to take different perspectives because they don't often have to. But the flip side is actually for people who are not in positions of power, they're forced to take other perspectives all the time. That's the nature of not being powerful. And that what's actually more important for them is perspective giving, having a space where they can give their perspective and have it heard by somebody else. And so I think, again, that sort of when do we need to employ perspective giving and when do we need to employ perspective taking and how that relates to asymmetries of power, I think is a really fruitful way to think about this going forward. There's a lot to learn from health in, in healthcare just from that summary of the role of listening. Uh, Anthea, thank you so much for that insight. This is a conversation that I, I will be reflecting on for a long time to come. There is so much food for thought here. We are going to need to, to begin to bring this conversation to a close. And in ending, I'd like to ask each of you if you can identify one of the many complex challenges that we face and explain how it would look different if we were to think in a more integrative and systemic way and if we were to apply these principles of listening that we've just been talking about. Um, Anna Greta, would, would you like to go first? Is it healthcare that immediately comes to your mind or are there other examples that, that you'd like to draw on? It's climate change. And it really, we, we have one of the most complex challenges faced by human civilization as the climate changes and as our carbon pollution and greenhouse gas emissions continue to rise. Uh, and understanding the consequences of this complex science, I think, remains a tremendous challenge across the world. Uh, we do need a whole-of-system response. We need a response that empowers and enables individuals. We need governments and agencies, non-governmental organisations. And there's not one answer. There will be a multitude of answers. There's, we have to contend as we deal with this complex problem with a, quite a deal of imprecision and uncertainty um, and complexity with a variety of different solution frameworks that are available. And so listening uh, to each other and sharing ideas and working together with a common goal toward a better future, that's, that's to me a tremendously important part of the work that I'm continuing to do in the health and climate space. This model, the integrative thinking, the risk-reward resilience, is a tremendous tool to use in that space, uh, really reminding us of the benefit of seeing a multitude of different perspectives. And that enables us to find the common ground between a number of different divergent solutions. 
But it also reminds us, and again, using this model into to complex problems like catastrophic existential risk, the multitude of things that might potentially go wrong for us in the next couple of centuries, that we shouldn't solve one problem on its own. And that as we try to solve one particular element of one particular problem, we can see other issues arise. And so uh, the benefit and the, the, the need for this integrative and systematic thinking uh, could not be greater than, than at this particular moment in history. Anthea, have you got a, an example you'd like to, to share with us? So I can tell you where my mind is going currently. It's not an area that I'm an expert in, but it, I'm very clearly seeing the same dynamics coming up, and that's in artificial intelligence and generative AI. And at the moment, I think you're very clearly seeing in the business world and in the policy world this kind of, you know, unbelievable rewards opportunity no catastrophic existential risk and and yet not really a lot of discussion yet of resilience and how do we incorporate this and how do we absorb and adapt so it seems to me very clear that we're going to need to have a risk reward and resilience discussion about AI and generative AI but I'm going to give you a kicker here which is I have been working with uh, a young um person who's been in government before and and will be back in government uh, again by the name of Sam Bide, absolutely brilliant young man. And he has been following the risk reward resilience work for many years and in fact applied it into the Office of Supply Chain Resilience in terms of coming up with their approach. He has now not only been interested in how this applies to AI, but has been teaching AI large LLM models the framework and it's starting to produce some extraordinary results. And so that's very much where our focus is at the moment, which is how you can actually use AI to leverage this framework to actually produce answers that are really quite interesting and stunning. And Sharon, I think one of the things you'll find the most interesting about this is when we have started to do that across a number of different areas, one of the things that has absolutely stood out to me is under transformative resilience, so often what comes up is taking a more, not just a more ecological approach, but a more Indigenous sort of uh, complexity-oriented approach, taking something that really brings in some of these notions of different uh, ways of understanding the world and different, more equitable distributions. And so your instinct and your insight about what transformation could mean is actually really coming up through our early application of this through AI in a way that I think is incredibly interesting. Anthea, that's fascinating. And and I think we will need to invite you back in the near future to talk in more detail about some of these issues and not just the risks, but the rewards and the resilience. It's an exciting new way of thinking about some of the challenges that we face. This has been an extraordinary conversation. And I think when we when we reflect on new ways of thinking and new ways of doing, we're always reminded of the depth of human ingenuity to respond to challenges. Um, and Anthea, in those final comments you made, it, it makes me reflect that we, not ju- we don't just need to look to the future, but also to understand the past and particularly in Australia, the rich thinking that we already have, particularly um, through Indigenous knowledge and Indigenous practice and ways of doing. So this framework, this way of thinking about and beyond risk is so incredibly exciting as we face the kinds of complexities and challenges that we've mapped um, during this conversation. Anthea Roberts, Anna Greta Hunter, thank you so much for joining us for this extraordinary conversation today. Thank you very much for having us. Thanks so much, Sharon. And Anthea, great to have you on the pod. Thank you. This podcast is produced by policyforum.net and we'll leave a link to the publications and the sources that we've talked about in our show notes. If you like this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date with future episodes. And if you're feeling generous, you can always leave us a review. That's the best way for other people to find out about the amazing conversations that we have here on Policy Forum Pod. We love hearing from you, so please do reach out to us on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum, that's at APPS Policy Forum, or you can flick us an email at podcast at policyforum.net. Next week, Anna Greta will be back on the hosting side of the mic, and we look forward to joining you again then. But for now, from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.